What does God want from you? Regardless of where you are, your spiritual situation, there has more than likely been the moment where you've asked yourself that question. If you're in this space and you've never placed your faith, your trust in the person of Jesus, what does God want from you? Maybe you're here and you don't even believe there is a God. You just are exhibiting some type of nicety this morning by joining with a friend who just kept nagging you about coming to this facility on a Sunday morning. But if you've ever dealt with crisis or hardship, there may have been a moment where you said to yourself, if there is a God, what does he want for me? If you're an avid churchgoer, you're here regularly. Every time the doors are open, you've even got the the code to the realtor box on our door. We're probably going to need to change that soon. You may have thought to yourself, what does God want for me? What would God have me to do? Who would God have me to be? How would God have me to do that and to be that? What does God want from me? If you're a dedicated follower of Jesus, devoted to the message of Jesus, the hope of Jesus, what would God want from me? What does God want from us? What would he have us to do? Who would he have us to be? How would he have us to live? How would he have us to act, interact, and react with others? What does God want from you? The big idea for our text today is pretty simple. It's this, that God wants all of you, every ounce, every aspect, every crevice, every corner of your being, God wants that. He wants it. He wants you. He wants you completely. We're in Mark chapter 12. We're in the temple. Jesus is in the midst of teaching, but he's also doing some uh, correcting, rebuking, reproofing. I'm not sure if that's a word, but we'll go with it. Jesus is taking these listeners in the direction that he would have them to go. And as Jesus interacts with these various Groups who are going to come upon him, Jesus lets them know this is what God would want from you. Jesus lets us know what God wants from us as well as we walk through this text together. So typically, if you're, if you're with me, uh, if you're a regular, you've got a frequent flyer card here at Grace on a Sunday morning, you know that I'll typically read through the entirety of my text. This is a large portion of text, so I'm going to walk through it in chunks, but we're going to get to see... What God wants from us. But the breakdown, if I'm going to give you a really simple one, is this. When you look at this passage, you can see three things at play. You see that God wants all of you. And he, you see the brackets of the story in a conversation about a coin. All of these, all these confrontations. And then another conversation about a different coin. Coin, confrontations, coin. And we get to see what God would want from each and every one of us. The first is this conversation about who Caesar is and what it means to render to him what belongs to him. In the temple, the Pharisees do not like Jesus. They are upset with Jesus. And the temple is not necessarily a place for fellowship. For, for me at my church growing up, it was. You had fellowship in the church gathering. At our church when I was in Chattanooga, 
People after the worship services, those who did not leave during the invitation, who were trying to get to Luby's, they would stand around and talk in the, the lobby and in the sanctuary or worship center, depending upon the word that you prefer. We had a, a custodian named Eddie Joe, and Eddie Joe would get pretty perturbed with people, and about seven and a half to eight minutes into that conversation, the lights would begin to flicker, and you would know that it was time to head to Taco Bell. So the... When we're talking about the temple here, it's a place for worship. It's a place for sacrifice. And Jesus here uses this place to teach. Mark chapter 12, uh, verse 13. He's just, he has just walked through the parable of the wicked tenants. We spent time there last week. And in verse 13, then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you're truthful. And we don't care what anyone, and you don't care what anyone thinks. Nor do you show partiality, but but teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay... Or shouldn't we? The, the phrase trapping in the passage gives a little bit of direction as to what they're attempting to do with Jesus. And if we were just to come upon some of these passages without any idea as to what's taking place before and what will take place afterwards, we would think these were honest, legitimate, concerned conversations. This one gives us the picture that it's not necessarily that. And there is another step that we can take as a congregation to understand the difficulty of the group that's coming to him. You've got the Pharisees, and the Pharisees believe that for the Messiah to come, that you had to rid yourselves of all wrongdoers. And you had to straighten your life up as best you could. And the Pharisees believed that everyone should be obedient to them. If you were ever in a children's musical as a child, the Pharisees, they were not so fair, you see. You have another group called the Herodians. And the Herodians believed that for the Messiah to come, that you needed to align yourself as best as you possibly could with King Herod. There are these two groups, and the strange thing about these groups, they don't get along. They're not friends. This is Aggies and Longhorns right there together disagreeing in every way that they can disagree, using all the jokes that they have about one another under, each, under their breaths while they look, but they see this Jesus, and the strangest thing about enemies and friends is you will tag team up with someone to deal with someone that you both dislike. And the Pharisees, they come to Jesus. You've got the Herodians, and they have a belief about taxation, especially in Galilee. Because they followed after King Herod, They would definitely want to make sure that taxes were paid. The other group, the Pharisees, they begrudgingly would give their taxes. The zealots went one step further, though they're not part of the conversation yet. They believe that you should never, ever pay your taxes. And with this conversation, they look at Jesus, and it's pretty simple, attempting to trap him. If he says, yes, you should pay your taxes, every Jewish person outside of those wicked Herodians will say, I'm done with him. But if he says no, then Rome can rightfully arrest and crucify him based on their understanding and idea of right. 
They have dealt with their problem. Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, the word hypocrisy, it conveys to us knowing that they were wearing a mask. I mean, you see it in the reading of the words in the passage. They were trying to butter both sides of the biscuit. And whenever you do that, you make a mess. The mess has been made. And he said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to to look at. So they brought him a coin. Coins are funny for us. I don't think we even use them anymore. I have a mason jar that we use to decorate my dresser with all these coins in it. We have various presidents on our coins. We've got a 50-cent piece. Who can tell me who's on the 50-cent piece? Like I said, I have a quarter. Who's on the quarter? George Washington. The strangest thing is the lower we go in value, the more recognizable they seem to be. A dime? This is the one we struggle with. The nickel? Well, thankfully we have online giving. Who's on the penny? We get the idea of putting presidents on our coins from Rome. But you did not put a past Caesar. Whoever the current Caesar is would have his face on the coin. Tiberius Caesar was in charge. Jesus says, hand me the coin and ask the question of the listeners, whose face is on the coin? Regardless of where you stood, Herodian, Pharisee, Zealot, you knew the answer. Caesar's face is on the coin. But Jesus, when he gets the answer from them, replies, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And give to God the things that are God's. There are numerous things we can read about the political implications of taxation and Roman government. But the point of Jesus in this passage does not necessarily seem to be pointing in that direction. It's it's more this. His face is on the dumb coin, so give him the coin. But if you're a person who belongs to Yahweh, Pharisee, you claim to belong to Yahweh. Zealot, you, you say that you're in alignment with Yahweh. The image of God is on you. So you give Caesar his image on the coin and you give God you. After dealing with them, we get to the next. Verse 18. Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, they they came to him and they questioned him. This is almost a bull in the ring situation. Everyone's wanting to get... Take a chunk out of Jesus. Teacher, Moses wrote that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that the man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Well, let's do this, Jesus. There were seven brothers. 
The first married a woman, and dying, he left no offspring. The second, she, I mean, he, he took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise, none of the seven left the woman any offspring. Last of all, the woman dies. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? Since the seven had married her. They don't believe in resurrection, but they would like to know his opinion of resurrection. It's this weird thing that we do with whataboutism. Whenever there is something that we believe to be contentious about someone else's answer for a, for a given question. But what about this and what about that? And Did you ever think about this? And Jesus, have you ever considered this? What about, what about, what about, what about... They only observe the Torah. That's not mentioned in the text. They, 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 the first five books of the Bible, that's all that the Satan resurrection. They don't believe in future judgment. They don't believe in angels or demons or spirits. They were very much into free will. They, they were in the situation with Jesus. We're coming to you and want to know about your resurrection answer because you don't have a good answer for us. There's no explicit reference to resurrection. However, it's really heavily implied. Watch how Jesus answered them. 24. Jesus spoke to them. Isn't this the reason why you're, you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. What a unique phrase. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. As if, as if there are some of us who might separate those things. For when they rise from the dead... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like angels in heaven. As for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Their question is one about resuscitation. What happened? So you believe there is something after death. And you believe that after someone dies, they will get their life back. As if they are a vampire that's been returned to life. But in actuality, what Jesus is saying is, we are not resuscitating. You are being transformed when you enter into the presence of God. They were living for the gotcha. And while he, while he stands here in grand sense, we're going, they're thinking to themselves, we're going to embarrass him and put an end to this whole resurrection business. And everyone will walk away. Because all that we hold to is these five books of the law and they don't mention resurrection. And Jesus quotes for them from Moses who they were pretty into. They were very pro-Moses. I am the God of your father. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Jesus, when he references the book of Exodus, he undoes Sadducean talk about the notion of an of no resurrection. Because this is not I was the God. This is I am. This is the everlasting presence of God. Right here. I am that. Next. One of the scribes. He approached. 
And when he had heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered him well, he asked him, which command is the most important of all? I think that the phrase answered him well is really funny. Whose perspective of well? The strangest thing about power and position is that it affects our perspective. It impacts the way we see the world. It impacts the way that we see those apart from us. It impacts everything. These Pharisees were the most well-respected men in the entirety of the world. And Jesus, you know what? He had a really good answer. And there's all kinds of debate as to is there tension or whatever with what Jesus says here. But when he heard them debating and giving this answer about heaven, he said to him, which command is the most important of all? And Jesus answered him, the most important one, and we're familiar with this. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He asks for a command, and Jesus replies with the most well-known prayer in the book of Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. This is the the whole, the totality of the law. Jesus just gives him here. You are to love God with your heart. Love God with your soul. The word heart is not just the thing that thumps in our chest. It's holistic being. The love of the Lord your God with your soul. It's the, the word for soul translates to hunger after. You should hunger after him. Love the Lord your God with all of your mind. The notion of being in relationship with God is not just an emotional experience where we put hands up, though we do believe that that is a scriptural picture that we see. Loving God with your mind means that we dedicate ourselves to knowing who God is and why God is that, and we do that as we interact with Him in in His Word. Love the Lord your God with all of your strength. This is the active outpouring of these inward transformations. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he goes one step further. Quotes from Leviticus chapter 19. Because who doesn't like a good Leviticus quote? And love your neighbor as you love yourself. Nothing's better than this. This is the most important thing ever. And the scribe said to him, you're right. That's my favorite phrase in the whole of the Bible. You know what, Jesus? You're on to something. You have correctly said that he is one and there's no one else except him. And to love him with your heart and your understanding and with your strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. It's far far more important than every burnt offering, every sacrifice. It's more important than the music that we play. It's more important than the type of preaching that we do. To love him with your totality, that matters. But power and position, they prevent perspective. Notice the next thing that Jesus says. When Jesus saw that he answered him wisely, he said, you're not far. Look, we get a mixed bag in this room. And some of you guys, church is not your background. For some of us, church is our background. One of the scariest things in the world to me is that we have really, really church people who may think they are so in line with God because of attendance and maybe an envelope that you grew up getting at your little church. We believe that we are in right standing with God because we we believe that we're doing everything that our favorite author says to do with our children and with our jobs. 
you're not far from the kingdom of God to the person who's probably the most respected in that situation. If he's not far from the kingdom, what's he not part of? The kingdom. I don't think any of us think that going to church makes you a Christian. But if you do, that's a terrible thought pattern. It just means you transport from one place to the next. I would have said teleport, but you're not mutants. You're not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared to ask him questions any longer. Person one, poof. Person two, poof. Person three, poof. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls himself Lord. How then can he be a son? The large crowd is listening to him with delight because this Jesus, he is saying to them that I am indeed this Messiah who is the fulfillment of this psalm. Every moment you've been frustrated with the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Herodians, Though you believe they were leading you rightly, they they were improperly leading you, but I'm here to properly care for you. I am the one who meets every need. I'm the one who comes and cuts the corners of, I, I get to you. I'm pursuing you. 38. He also said in his teaching... Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and in greeting and, and who want greetings in the marketplaces. The best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at banquets. If you saw the Pharisee coming, you would look at him and you would say, how does this person really practically live based on what he was wearing? You look ridiculous. But you could never say that. To be greeted in the marketplace meant that when you would walk through, people were expected to stand up and to greet you. When they were in teaching situations, they would sit there behind the teacher and they would face those who were listening to let you know that we hold this place of power over you. You look to us 
They devour widows' houses. They say long prayers just for show. They're going to receive a harsher judgment. There are accounts of them mismanaging the estates uh, of which they become trustees. They would take advantage of widows and take their houses as pledges for unpaid debt. They promoted a kind of religion that actually ends up making the poor even poorer. They had looked at those widows and they had exploited their hospitality and their trust. These men who claimed to be doing the best for the people were actually scammers. In Matthew's account of this story, as we know, Mark sprints. Matthew just gives us a few more details. He says these men have sealed the temple's doom. Jesus says all these things and everybody's there. We know that they're there because the next verse you get in 41 is... Him calling his disciples to himself. 41, 42. Sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums, John F. Kennedy. There were 13 trumpets-shaped chests. The shape amplified the sound of the coin. Every time a coin would drop, you would hear it, and you could tell how wealthy someone was by the sound the coin was making. And when the rich deposited their coins, you knew it. Then a poor widow came. She dropped two tiny coins that weren't worth anything. Very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, This is the way it is. This poor widow has put more into the treasury than everybody else. For they gave out of their sur- for she- they all gave out of their surplus. But she gave out of her poverty. Out of her poverty, she has put in everything she had. Everything she had to live on. She gave everything she had to live on. Which is in effect saying, Lord, this is all I have, but I'm going to trust you with my tomorrow. Lord, I'm trusting that you're going to care for me. I'm trusting that you will provide for me. I'm trusting that you're going to give me that daily bread. Her gift is honored by Jesus because it's the greatest reflection of God. When you're looking at this giving in the passage... 
who looks the most like God? The one who gives everything. Our giving matters because God in Jesus gave us everything. We can only see that the things that we offer to God can can do anything of impact because Jesus gave everything. You can only give God all of you because Jesus, his broken body, his shed blood, he gave everything. His offering is our offering. What we do as believing people gets its value from Christ crucified, resurrected, inviting image bearers who were far from God to be near to him so that they could reflect his image again. Jesus gives everything so that we can know him. So that we can live in response to him. So that we can look more like the widow than we look like religious Pharisees. So that our coins symbolically are celebrated in heaven. As we give of everything that we've been given. Is it more than money? I hope so. The scriptures seem to believe that. Romans 12, Paul says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God that we're going to think about in just a moment at this table, His general mercies of giving us life and breath, His particular mercy of offering us His broken body and shed blood. Therefore, brothers, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. So we have a tendency in spaces like this just to hop up. And that's great. But would you ask just in the moment, Lord, what what would you want from me? What does my everything look like today? How can everything that you've given me reflect who you are, Jesus? Reflect your brokenness, reflect your shed blood, reflect your, reflect your mercy, your care, your compassion. Father, I thank you for these people. If there are any in our midst who've never placed their trust in you, Jesus, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. Father, for believers, I I pray that we would be much more like the widow than we are the Pharisees. Offering up our lives because of your life. So, Father, I pray you've taught us today what it means to belong to you. And you have impacted our souls through your word and through, through 
worship and song. If you're not a believer, I'm in the back corner of the room. Here's what I would say. Faith family, this is something that matters to us. We believe that Christ's body, Christ shed blood, that is our only hope. So if you're not a believer, just don't take it. If you want to talk to me about what it means to take communion, I'm in the back right-hand corner of the room. I'll have two cups with me. And I would love to walk you through what it means to place your faith and your trust in Jesus. If you're a believer, can we just wrestle with the truths that the Lord has impacted us with this morning?